0: Well, if you're just joining us, we are in part four of a sermon series that we're calling Roots and Relationships. Uh, It starts, our series really began with the story of a sower, uh, a guy who's going out into a field and he's sowing seed and some seed lands on a path, some seed lands on rocky soil, some some seed lands amongst thorns, but some seed lands in good soil and it grows up and it bears good fruit. In the Gospel of John Jesus, after healing a blind man, says that I have come into this world so that you can see and so that you can have life and life abundantly. Jesus wants us to have the good life, life to the fullest. We've said not just hashtag blessed, but also a blessing. And throughout the scriptures, garden variety metaphors are used to describe what the good life looks like. The good life is like a tree that is planted by streams of water. The good life is like a branch that is connected to a vine, sort of heavy with fruit. Or the good life can be depicted as a field that is rippling with wheat. All year long, we've analyzed what we need to do and what must be done to us in order to have this kind of life, this good life. We see that this good life starts with a seed, Jesus identifies as God's word, which you need to get inside of your heart. You need to be receptive to it, you need rest. You need to put down roots. You need to be in relationship. Just say you can't live the good life on your own. You need to do it in community. Sort of following God with others. It's not enough for you just to know these things. You then need to put them into practice. But if and when you do, there is a promise. Out Out of the good soil of your life will grow this good life. And out of it will emerge good fruit. Last week, I introduced sort of this concept of a demonstration plot. Uh, Back in the day, farmers, if they found a new sort of technique or a new type of tool or a new type of fertilizer, they would use that new technique or tool or fertilizer in what was called the demonstration plot. And they would test that new technique, tool, or fertilizer and compare the results of that uh, that demonstration plot with what was happening in the fields around it. So if something really grew up tall and tasty, people would be like, yo, what's happening there? And they would be able to explain, it's because of this tool or this technique or this fertilizer. Well, in very much the same way God wants his people, he wants his church to be demonstration plots, not separated from the world, but smack dab in the midst of them. And he wants to grow something in us, he wants to grow something in you, that, that bears fruit and would beg questions like, why, are you, why is this the way that it is? Why are you the way that you are? Full of X, Y, and Z. Maybe full of peace and patience and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Like, there's something about you that is different than the world around you, right? Us as a demonstration plot. If you want to know what someone really believes, we said last week too, what they really value, what they really love, You can look at the way that they spend their time, but you can also look at the way that they spend their money. This is one of the sort of the fruits that sort of grows out of this soil, not just the way that we relate to our time, but also the way that we relate to our money and to our possessions. In his book, Money, Possessions and Eternity, author Randy Alcorn notes that when people ask John the Baptist what the good life would look like in practice, this guy, he told them to share their clothes and food with the poor. He then said, to to the tax collectors not to collect and pocket extra money and finally he told soldiers not to extort money and to be content with their wages what's interesting is that nobody asked john about money and possessions they just asked him what they should do to bear fruit that proved that they had been spiritually renewed spiritually transformed yet all of his answers relate to money and possessions those two things were of such high priority and so close to the heart of what it means to follow god that John could not talk about spirituality without talking in terms of how we handle our money and our possessions. Y'all tracking? It's this way with Jesus, too. 15% of his recorded words in the Bible are devoted to this subject alone, how we handle our money and our possessions. And we hear it in the passage that we heard read tonight, which is taken from his most famous of sermons, a Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus' very own words, you can't worship God and store treasures in heaven. You can worship God and you can store treasures in heaven, or you can worship money and store your treasures here on earth. But you can't do both. It's one or the other. There are two ways of being in this world, yielding two very different sort of results. Which is to say, if you are resting and rooted and in relationship with Jesus and his people, there is growing, there is going to grow out of you a life that is very different from the lives of those around you. It's inevitable. Now, before we touch on what some of those differences are and may be, I want you to grasp why those differences exist in the first place. And why we should expect them to exist in the first place. Let's start by looking at verses 22 and 23 of our passage. You have that there in a handout. You can also pull this passage up maybe on a Bible app if you want to follow along there too. But in these verses, 22 and 23, Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great Is the darkness? This is kind of a cryptic way of speaking. For the longest time, I was like, "What the heck is Jesus talking about?" And why is this sort of sandwiched between like talking about treasures in earth and treasures in heaven and like worshiping God and money? Like, what's the connection here? Well, I think very much in these verses, Jesus is talking about worldview, which is to say the ways that you view the world, how you see the world shapes. How you live in it. I'll say that again. How you see the world, it shapes how you live in it. If you see the world rightly, which is to say if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Right perception leads to right knowing and doing, which leads to right action, which ultimately culminates in a good life. A life that goes with the grain of the universe and not against it. A life that's lived in the light. But conversely, someone with poor perception, which is to say, whose eye is bad. They're going to wind up going against the grain of the universe. A body then that is metaphorically full of splinters and a life that is full of darkness. Right? The way that we see the world having a good eye or a bad eye, the way that we see the world is going to shape how we live in it with consequences. Take someone who has maybe a secular outlook. A secular outlook meaning just all that exists really is all that we can see. A priority on the the visible here and now. A secularist is someone who denies God's existence or just doesn't care right? Denies the existence of an afterlife like heaven or hell. There's just nothing beyond the grave. There's only this life. There's only this here and now. Now, someone with this kind of worldview is going, as you can imagine, they're going to live very differently than someone with a biblically informed imagination or a biblically informed worldview. After all, the way you see the world shapes how you live in it. If there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's just this life, you will quite naturally be inclined to get as much of as much money as many possessions as you possibly can while you can right you're going to store treasures on earth because where else would you store it there's no heaven to store it up in like it's just this life this life is all that matters so get that bread right the one with the most toys wins and you see this mentality everywhere you hear it in lyrics and songs that are sung on the radio. People bragging about their Lambos and their big boats. You hear, uh, you know, uh, Ari- or Ariana singing like, "I want it, I got it, right? I want it, I got it." <laughs> I'm not going to embarrass myself much more than that. But if you look at the lyrics of like Seven Rings, it is like a manifesto for this kind of living. It's unbelievable. It says whoever said money can't solve your problems must not have enough money so to solve them, right? Money is the solution. You got to get it. That's the vibe. You see this on shows on television like Real Housewives or on HDTV like their dream homes, right? you see it just walking through the malls or even just walking down Church Street. This is all that there is. So get as much things as possible. Maximize your pleasure. Minimize your pain. This is really the sea that we're swimming in. It should come as no shock or surprise that sort of secularism breeds an obsession with money and possessions. The technical term for this is greed, right? Greed is a vice. It's a kind of a spiritual sickness that manifests itself as possessiveness and covetousness, covetousness. that's a hard word to say. Mm -hmm. Wanting wanting things that other people have, (laughs) right? You want it all, And you don't want to share what you've got. There's a pastor named Scott Salls who says the two chief symptoms of this are hoarding wealth and spending money almost exclusively on yourself. You might be like you might have this greed sickness if you are just constantly accumulating things and you don't spend money on anything other than yourself. Going further back in time, there's a guy named Thomas Aquinas. He said greed is an excessive love of or desire for money or any possession money can buy. Rather than possessing their possessions, greedy people, they become possessed by them. They don't just grip their things. Their things have got a grip on them, which makes it very hard for them to let go. Right? They're in their vice. And the opposite of greed is generosity. Generous people may care about their possessions, but they're not ruled or gripped by them. And because they're not gripped by their possessions, they can... They have an easier time giving things away. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But before I do, and before we do, I want to highlight a couple of things about greed. So far I've been thinking about and describing greed as a fruit that sort of grows out of a particular sort of environment. And if greed is sort of like this thing that we might taste and see out of this culture, I want us to imagine like we're taking an apple off a tree and we're biting into it. And to really understand sort of the flavor profile. Like what does this actually look like and taste like in everyday life? If we go to the sort of this secular sort of like the culture that denies God's existence, says there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's just this life. Out of this is growing this tree from that branch, it's a fruit. We grab it, we bite into it. The first thing I think that we taste for sort of this, this note of greed is selfishness. It's like the first thing that maybe touches, uh, hits our tongue. Greed is essentially, it's, it's really, really selfish. One of the things that I read this week that caught my attention was how greed and selfishness is sort of on the rise in our culture. We're seeing maybe a post-pandemic surge of selfishness, one author writes. People who have not been allowed to do things for over a year are deciding to do whatever they want now that the restrictions are over or or, are almost over. It's like pent up. Like I haven't been able to do anything. Now I'm gonna do everything that I want and I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what stops me. Like I'm entitled to this. Like I'm entitled to just you do you I'm gonna do me. And I'm gonna do it like at 110%. We see it and people We saw this during the, uh, we saw greed like during the virus and sort of just as the virus is getting ready with like people hoarding things in the grocery stores like mountains of toilet paper. What was that all about? And um, I don't know, just everyday items. But we also see it in just people buying up things like boats and bikes and campsites and SUVs, like anything that they fix their heart on, making sure that they can get what they want. Someone pointed out to me that the Roaring Twenties Right, like the 1920s, you know that era of like the Gatsbys and the Rockefellers, like all of the opulence and sort of laissez-faire like, mentality, that was largely in reaction, historians say, to two crises that preceded it, a world war and the Spanish flu of 1918, where 50 million people died. Coming on the heels of like, the, this war and this global pandemic, people are just like, look, this is all that we've got and life is short or could be cut short, I'm just gonna do whatever makes me feel good. Like, I'm just gonna like enjoy as much wealth and as much, you know, opulence and and luxury as I possibly can because there's nothing beyond the grave. There's just this moment, and I want it to be awesome. That's the roaring twenties. It doesn't matter that other people might be hurting or starving, it doesn't matter what else might be going on, right? This is all that there is. So, YOLO. Like, that's what, that's what was true of like the, in the 1920s. Like, they were living out that life, and we see people doing it today, right? I'm entitled to do whatever makes me feel good. But this isn't just, like, a personal issue. It has wider and broader implications. Like, injustice happens when we keep to ourselves things that God intended to be shared, Right? The problem with world hunger and poverty is not that there's not enough food to go around or there's not enough wealth to go around. It's, the problem is that people just don't want to share what they've got. Greed leads to injustice, but it also leads to social isolation. As wealth increases, so does the gap between rich and poor. But there's a physical gap that happens as well as sort of the rich move into nicer and nicer, maybe enclaves, maybe the gated community or the more, you know, exclusive zip code. We say of such people that they are losing touch because they are. They're more and more isolated from people, especially the ones that God says, I identify most with them, and become out of touch. Finally, greed breeds discontentment. The shiny things that we buy that we think is ultimately going to make us happy, they eventually lose their luster. I mean, I just got a new iPhone 13, it's awesome. It, like opening, the the, there are geniuses in like Menlo Park or whatever is it, they they designed these things. Like when you open this thing up, it just, it feels magical. Like it's so shiny, you just like, you hold up your old iPhone to it and you scan this thing and all of this stuff goes through the cloud and you're just like, this is incredible. You know, I've been waiting for you. But like three days later, it's just a phone, right? It hasn't solved any of my problems, right? It made me happy for a moment, but that that happiness fades. Often, our discontentment feels like FOMO. There is a connection between YOLO and FOMO. If you only live once, you're going to constantly have this fear of missing out. If all I have is this life, I'm constantly thinking what am I missing? What am I not getting? who has it better than me Aziz Ansari I think talks about this in a comedy special I'm pretty sure it's his voice who is talking about he can't enjoy a good taco He you know he's in New York City and he's got his iPhone and he's like looking on Yelp and it takes him an hour to find like the best taco in New York so maybe after like an hour of scrolling and all of his friends are just like, I'm not hungry anymore. Like he goes to like this taco shop and he eats this taco, but he's still wondering like, is this the best taco I could be getting for my money? And it's a, probably an awesome, amazing taco, but it tastes like ash in his mouth because he's still thinking like, I don't know, maybe there's a better one just around the corner. But you, you, you understand what I'm saying, right? If you only live once, if you've got to get it all right now and you got it, it better be the best you're gonna have this constant gnawing fear of missing out. This is what it all tastes like. And, I, and I'm, I'm glad to sort of slow this down and sort of talk about it because maybe you begin to see like, oh, this is hitting a little bit closer to home. It's not like just like, oh, my, my wealthy aunt who has this problem with greed. I think you begin to see like, we're all struggling with it in this room, right? We all like, it touches our hearts, mine too. Rockefeller was once asked, and this is like J.D. Rockefeller, like in his time, like the Jeff Bezos of his era. He was asked, how much money is enough money? You know what his famous reply was? One more dollar. Like this is a guy who like in today's dollar or like today's money was like he had like a hundred billion dollars. He was so wealthy. But how much money, how much money is enough, J.D.? One more dollar. Just one more. But here, it gets even more interesting. Because when Rockefeller died, his accountant was asked, how much did J.D. leave behind? And the accountant answered, he left all of it. He left all of it. The point being, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy Like someone has famously said, like, you'll never see a hearse pulling a U haul. Like, you can't take it with you. You can make better investments, right? Hoarding wealth and spending money only on yourself, in Jesus' perspective, from, from his vantage, he's like, that is stupid. That is selfish and it is a waste. What good will it be for a man? What good would it be for a woman? If you gain the whole world, but you forfeit your soul, it's a bad trade. It's not a good investment. If you don't like the fruit that I'm describing, what you got to do is you got to change the root. If you don't like the fruit, you got to target the root. Did I say that right? You don't like the fruit, get at the root. It's easier on the page, honestly. (laughs) You see, all of these signs and all of these symptoms, they don't, they're not just growing out of nowhere. They're not just coming out of nowhere, right? This greed, this selfishness, this FOMO, it's all rooted in a particular set of ideologies. It's all rooted in a worldview that denies God's existence or his relevance, It's all rooted in this worldview that believes there is no God, there is no heaven, there is no hell. This is all there is to it. So you had better get it while you can. I want to take you back to Jesus's words. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, If the way you see the world is bad, your whole body is going to be full of Darkness. Conversely, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And that's kind of the point. It's not just that we would live in the light, but that our lives would shine. They would tell a story. They would shine forth the truth of who God is and what he is capable of doing. A demonstration plot, right? There is a kind of life that Jesus wants people to see in you. Because after all, you are made in God's image. You are made in the image of God for the sake of imaging God, for the sake of making an invisible God visible. You are made to reflect his heart and his character. And this is why, friends, when we go astray and when our life sort of looks like it's all tangled up in the weeds, Jesus draws near to you. He draws near to you because he wants to redeem you and to cultivate within you life as it was always meant to be lived. The good life, right? Life to the full. Life where you were brought back into a right relationship with God and a right relationship with other people and a right relationship with the world around you. Life the way it was meant to be lived. And that means being in the world, but not of it. It means being salt and light. It means letting your light shine and letting folks taste and see that God is good. To get this right fruit, you've got to have the right root. If you want to have good fruit, you've got to have a good root. And that starts with a seed. As Jesus says, it starts with God's word. Because this word, right, the scriptures, what Jesus has to say, it gives us insight. The word gives us insight into the way things really are. You see your eyes healthy, your body's gonna be full of light. You see the world rightly, things are gonna go well for you. And we get that right insight from the scriptures. Page one of the Bible Page one, you don't have to go go digging very far. You just open to the very first page. We see right away that there is a God and that this God created the heavens and the earth, that this earth surely exists. Obviously, no duh, right? But this is not all that exists. There is a God above who made the earth and he made the heavens. There is more than meets the eye. You keep reading on page one and then you turn to page two. We're given even greater insight. We don't just see the world, but we see our place in it. We we see ourselves and we see our neighbors for the glorious beings that we really are, creatures made in the image of God. C.S. Lewis says it best. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. He continues, he says, All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or two, or one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all of our friendships, all of our loves, all of our play, all of our politics. And here's where like, he gets the kicker. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal whores or everlasting splendors. You see what he's driving here? From the scriptures, we don't just see the world for what it really is. We see ourselves and we see each other for who I am and who you really are. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors, which make, like, I don't know, as he puts it, the nations, the cultures, the art, the civilization, it makes it look like nothing, like the life of a gnat. If we're dealing with immortal whores or everlasting splendors, what is a good investment? Like, is it investing in like the stock market or is it investing in the person sitting to your left and to your right? Like, what is what is a more permanent value? What is a better investment? Investing in all these things or investing in the people around you? That's kind of what Jesus is saying. Don't store up treasures here on earth, store treasures in heaven. Inv- and what's going to be in heaven? People. People. Invest in them. Care about things that really matter, that really last. But to do that, we need better insight, don't we? Insight into the world, insight into the human person. But that's not all. We need to see God clear, too. Once again, this is where the seed of the word comes in handy. This word that God sows into our lives, right? It helps us to see. And it helps us to see Jesus, ultimately. Jesus, who says, If you see me, you've seen him. If you see me, you've seen the Father. If you know who I am and what I'm like, you know who God is and what he is like, because I have come from him to make him known. And what do we see, then, when we look at Jesus? Well, ultimately, we see a God who, is high, who has all the riches in the world, who has all the riches in heaven even, but who becomes poor. right? So that by his poverty, we might become rich. We see a God who gives up heaven and takes on earth. We see an infinite God become a finite human person. And he takes on a body. And then he gives up that body and he pours out his blood. Why? It's to have you. It's to have us as his possession. See, he takes in his body the punishment that our sins deserve so that there will be no more punishment left for you and for me. We see a God who is both just and the justifier of people like you and me. He punishes sin to the max, but he takes it in our stead so that we can be reconciled. That's what we see. We see a God experiencing poverty, experiencing hell on a cross, so that you and I can experience the riches of, of heaven with him forever. Second Corinthians says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? He says, it's that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Quoting Scott Sauce he says, on the cross, Jesus gave up all of his wealth, and not just 10% of it, but 100% of it, so that he could have us. He became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus was liquidated of his assets. Literally, as he bled out on the cross, liquidated, Of his assets. And when we begin to see this, when we sort of begin to see the generosity of God, our hearts become full. And as our hearts become full, mirroring God's generous heart will be a natural outcome. See, when the generosity of God gets into your heart and really enters into your bloodstream, you could put it this way, sort of in agricultural terms, when this becomes the soil that you are growing up in, right, when the seed that is planted in in your life is the the gospel of a God, the good news of a God who becomes poor so that we can become rich, when that is put in your heart and you begin to rest in that reality and you begin to sort of put down roots and you have this hidden support system that is joining you to Jesus and you are surrounded by other people who are sort of cultivating that life, when that becomes your life, you can't help but become a generous person. You can't help but become sort of this, this person who's a tree who's bearing generous fruit. Or When you take the, the apple off the branch, it doesn't taste like selfishness. It tastes like generosity. It tastes good. Where did you get that? Where does that come from? Because everyone else around here is sort of doing their own thing. They're all doing, you know, you do you and I want it, I got it. But you're different. What's up with that? They're going to taste and see a difference. And I think they're going to taste and see two things. I'll wrap up here. Just to get real practical. I think what this actually looks like and feels like is one, you're going to be a generous giver, which is going to be expressed in sort of, expressed in tithing, in in giving to to help the poor. And you're going to be able to enjoy what you already possessed, expressed weekly in sort of Sabbath rest. I'm gonna gloss over this quickly, okay? But what does generosity actually taste like? I think it looks like generous giving. And I think tithing, and I'll explain what that is in a second here, I think it's one of our best defenses against greed. If you don't wanna be gripped by your possessions, lessen your grip on it. Give a 10th of it away. The word tithe literally means a tenth. And tithing is a practice that it was ordained in the Bible where the people of God would give a tenth of their income, sort of their first roots back to God as an, as an expression of worship and as a sign of trust. Right? Tithing gives us perspective. It reminds us that all we are and all that we have is from God. It's not a tip that we throw mindlessly down on a table after a meal, but it is a meaningful expression of dependence uh, upon God in gratitude tor- toward him. Megan and I, we started taking a tenth right out of our paychecks and giving it to the church when we were still a couple, uh, not yet married. I was in grad school. She was work- waiting tables, working part-time jobs. You know, we weren't making a whole lot of money, but we'd just take a tenth of it and say, that's just going right to the church. That has continued as we've gotten older. That's continued as we've started raising a family. And I, I think now as a college student, it's actually a really great time for you to think about it, even before you, like, you, you start making. Like, some of you have these summer jobs. Some of you are like, maybe working part-time jobs. But before you really start your careers, to already just have it in mind. Like, hey, what would it look like for me to actually practically be a generous person and to tithe? To give a tenth, like to just when that paycheck comes in, just to think, yeah, that first tenth, It's going right back to the church. It's going to to kingdom causes. I'm not even going to let it touch my bank account. It's just going to go right right to those things. I'm going to live off the 90%. I encourage you to do that. According to a recent study, only 10 to 25% of the typical American congregation tithes. Tithing is way higher in poorer countries. This is interesting. The richer you get, the harder it is to tithe. But only 10 to 25% of the typical American congregation tithes which is to give the biblical starting point of 10% to the church. The same report concluded that if the remaining 75 to 90% of American Christians, just American Christians, began to tithe regularly, listen, global hunger, starvation, and death from preventable diseases could be relieved within five years. Additionally, illiteracy could be eliminated, the world's water and sanitation issues could be solved, all overseas missions work could be fully funded, and over $100 billion per year would be left over. (laughs) That is an astounding statement. Tithing is not just something that we do. It's it's not something that we do to get God's love. It is something we do because we have it already. It is something God wants the world to taste and see. Lastly, we can sort of show the fruit of our generosity just by resting Sabbath. Sabbath is not just a break from our work. It's also a break from buying. A day when we don't go to the stores and to to just accumulate more things, but a day to just simply sit back and relax and enjoy what we already have in our possessions, which is a lot. It's a day that we remember we're not defined by our productivity, but we're also not defined by our purchasing power. We're not constantly needing to get and to get and to get because in Jesus, we already have all that we need. And on Sabbath, we celebrate that. And you get to invite people into that rest and into that reality. We become what we focus on. We become what we focus on. And when the grace of Jesus is what is at the front of our mind, and when the grace of Jesus, it touches your life, you will become a charitable, gracious person. Which is why we can say with Jesus, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But y'all lay up treasures in heaven. Invest in the people around you where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father, we we long for this we long for this life that you want to grow in us. A life that is well watered and rooted and cultivated and bears fruit, like love and joy, peace and patience, that bears fruit of justice in an unjust world that is generous in a world that is full of greed. But we can't do that on our own. We need you to come to us. We need you to put that that word that gives us so much insight. We need you to put it inside of our, our hearts and then we need to be reminded of it again and again. Which is why, God, I'm grateful for nights like this. I'm grateful that we can speak your word to one another and the ones who've heard it can speak it to others still. Would you continue that work in our lives? Would you continue to renew us with your gospel? Would you fix our eyes on Jesus? Because as we see him, we'll become like him. I pray these things in his name. Amen.